You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, everyone. Elsie's on the board today. Sam is not with me. She's at the other studio, so here I am all by my lonesome with you here for the big show. We got a great show today. Before I tell you anything else, when I was nine or seven, I used to play road hockey with my brother and Ian Bird, God rest his soul, and our friend Mike Latimer, and we played road hockey every single day, and I was given in Toronto a Habs jersey. Everyone else was a Leafs fan. I don't know why I got a Habs jersey, and my hero, the Habs were winning, and of course, I used to pretend I was Ken Dryden. I'd put my goalie stick if I was in goal for road hockey, under my chin to imitate the great Ken Dryden, who, of course, was the Canadiens' goalie. Now, Ken Dryden ended up becoming a political member of parliament, and I got to know him. And, of course, he's one of the best writers. He's a lawyer. Uh, But in 1972, I don't remember this because I was too young, of course, he was one of the goalies alongside Esposito, in the great summit series. Now that is 50 years ago today or 50 years ago this month. And Ken's got a new book out called the series. What I remember, what it felt like, what it feels like now. And it's out now to coincide with an incredible new documentary put together by the producer, Nick DePontier and others on the CBC about the summit series. And Ken Dryden will join us at the end of the show about his new book, what he remembers about the great 72 series Remember Bobby Clark, the great slash, the turnaround, the Esposito speech. So Ken Dryden's going to join us to talk about the 72 series. It is like, sometimes you got to pinch yourself when you're getting to talk about hockey and the great 72, the seminal series, the Cold War series. Here we are in another Cold War. So this is more than relevant. Another Cold War with Russia. Hot war in Ukraine. And Ken Dryden joins us. So Ken is going to drop by. That'll be cool. And then two brothers who haven't spoken and have been feuding for 30 years are going to both drop by. They're running for mayor of the same town. They hate each other. They haven't spoken in 30 years. So one of the brothers who's running to be mayor is going to join us. And then the other brother, they refuse to come on together, will join us right after. How great, crazy is that? But here's what I want to open with. Parliament is back today. Stop, stop, don't yawn. Parliament is back today. This is about you. I always say to people, if someone was to say to you, by the way, um, I'm going to put 338 people and every day they're going to reach into your pocket and take out 30% or 40% or 50% of the money from your pocket. So, you know, 30% of your money, these 338 people are going to decide how to spend it without your... Thanks a lot. They could, they, they're taking 30% of your paycheck. For some of you, 40% of your paycheck. For some of you, 50% of your paycheck. Now, they may give you stuff in return, but it matters. And, and today, it matters even more. Because while the inflation numbers came back, and the annual inflation rate, quote, slowed to 7% in August, can you imagine we're talking about slowing to 7%? Percent groceries have gone through the roof. 
Now, gas prices are down, but they're up compared to a year ago by almost 11%. Sorry, grocery prices are up by almost 11%. Gas is down, but it's still up. There, gas is down like 19% since June, but in August of last year, you know, gas was 21, 22% cheaper. So things are up. But, but we're getting slaughtered at the grocery store. Let's just face it. Baked goods up almost 15.5%. Fresh fruit up 13% over a year ago. So inflation overall is falling, but you're feeling it. And, and, and ain't nobody throwing a party for 7%. Ain't nobody throwing a party for 7% inflation. So that brings me to the politicians who are back finally in the House today. The Conservatives have a new leader, Pierre Polyev. It's his first day in the House. Uh, Justin Trudeau should be there, but he's actually at the United Nations for the United Nations General Assembly. So he's making a kind of pit stop after um, the funeral for the Queen. I'm not going to discuss the Bohemian Rhapsody piano Rorschach test. People who like Justin Trudeau think it's an overblown, ridiculous thing. People who don't like him think he's an out-of-touch party boy. But I know my dear friend Graham Richardson, who sat in this chair yesterday. Pause. Thanks, Gray. You are awesome and one of the hardest working, best journalists I know. So thanks for sitting in the chair, Graham, and doing, as ever, a great job. I was, of course, on the uh, uh, national television special uh, with Omar Sajidina and the team in London uh, covering the funeral for the Queen. So Graham sat in. And I know Graham covered that very well. But the theme of the day based on Parliament back... And inflation still out of control, because I believe 7% is out of control. And even though inflation is dropping because the housing prices have dropped, they're only dropping because the bank is taking an emergency, cranking up the interest rates to try to slow down the crazy economy. Hands up if you like paying more in your mortgage. Nobody, but that's what has to happen. So pick your poison here. Pick your poison here. It sucks. So that's why the theme of the day today is twofold for the cons- for the liberals it is get it done don't get it spun stop spinning that things are great stop spinning that we're better than the uk who will have 18% inflation stop spinning that your 4.5 billion dollar affordability plan that you need new legislation for that will give you tax credits uh, double the tax credit for the GST and we'll give people 500 bucks and there'll be <coughs> a new dental plan. That is still not enough to solve the inflation crisis. No, it's not. And we can go over that, but stop spinning, take responsibility. People are suffering. There are polls out that I can read to you. An Angus Reed poll last month as quoted in Politico today. And I'll read. Zian Lum wrote, quote, four uh, in five Canadians feel their wallets are being stretched. Half the people polled, says Politico, said they wouldn't be able to manage household costs if they were faced with a surprise $1,000 expense. That's Angus Reid last month. So liberals, get it done. Don't get it spun. And for conservatives with your new leader, Get it done. Don't grieve it done. Stop the grievances. You're not victims of some conspiracy from the World Economic Forum. You're not victims. It's not like Canada's not a free country. 
We are a very free country by any measure. Forget that. The grievance politics just force the liberals to get it done with a real plan to help us out. Don't add the conspiratorial grievances that set people's hair on fire and frankly, burn down some very institutions that we need to get it done. So liberals, get it done. Don't get it spun. We're, we're, puke. we're sick of the spin. Conservatives, get it done. Don't grieve it done. Don't mix the practical solutions we need with unnecessary, foggy grievance politics that we don't need. And hitching your wagon to the grievance politics. But here's why things are going to be tricky. If you're Justin Trudeau, you may be the leader. You might have been the right leader at the right time in 2015. And you, because government... People wanted government to do something. They wanted a more activist government, and you did that. You might have been the right government at the right time during COVID because people needed government to, quote, have their backs. But is Justin Trudeau the right guy for this crisis? This crisis is a crisis where you got to spend less. It's a, it demands discipline. It demands saying no. Is he the right guy to say no? He's never shown an ability to not spend. There's no challenge function in the government. You wonder if this is the right guy, the wrong crisis for that guy. And is Pierre Polyev the right guy for a crisis like this? He certainly knows how to tackle it. But would he still have Canadians' backs in a tight economy? What is the right leader for the right time? We're going to dig into that next with new polling information from you. Stay with us. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Welcome back to the big show. I want your texts and calls now because I said get it done. For liberals, get it done, don't get it spun. Stop spinning that we don't need to do anything, that the budget's going to take care of everything. No, inflation is too big, it's too high, people are hurting too much. We need to kickstart the economy, we need to get productivity. And I said to the conservatives, get it done, don't grieve it done. Get practical solutions, stop, stop, please. Attaching everything to some kind of grievance that everybody's a victim of some conspiracy of the World Economic Forum or some lunatic, unproven theory that allows you to grieve without actually getting practical. And then I got a tweet. And, and let me just give you the, um, the number to call me at one 855 1010 1-855-633-1010 or 7-1010. What is the thing you most want done? What is the solution? Well, let's get practical here. Because somebody named Off-Road Artist just tweeted at me and said, Hey, Evan, how about some actual suggestions instead of just repeating get it done over and over again? The liberal government's measures look pretty sound to me, he says. Canadian media fails. Do the measures look good to you, Off-Road Artist? Well, call me, Off-Road one one eight five five six three three ten ten. You want to pitch them? Listen, if they're so good, if the if the liberals' measures are so good, I just want to ask you, off road. Why is inflation still at seven percent? Oh, I know what off road's going to say. That's not the government's fault. There's a have you not heard about the war? I know that off road. 
Governments are still responsible for the economy. I think they've been way too late on tackling the inflation issue. They've been waiting for monetary policy to do it. They've been waiting for the, go- the Bank of Canada to try to slow it down. But they have been racking up their spending like crazy. They should have eased off on their spending earlier. I'll give you another measure, off-road. We have to unleash productivity. We've got a productivity crisis here. That's just not governments buying things. That means we've got to unleash entrepreneurship. I'll give you an example. Our downtowns are collapsing because people aren't coming into work. Why not give small businesses tax incentives to hire people to bring them back to core, core cities, which is the largest tax base to help cities. Why not drop, you might say, what about, you know, the opposition has asked them to drop the gas tax, record revenues on gas tax because of inflation. Now you might say, well, the energy companies are just going to tack it back on, but consumers will feel that. Why don't you just drop that gas tax and say, we're going to give that to cities to promote it. There's lots of other solutions you can do. Now, you might say, well, the dental care, well, that's fair. You're going to help uh, 500,000 Canadians. I, I, listen, that, you can, that's a defensible policy. Child care benefit, that's a defensible policy if you want that. And the conservatives have to come up with, you know, building pipelines is not a solution. The liberals bought a pipeline. It's costing them over $20 billion, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Still not done. You can't just build a pipeline. You can't snap your fingers and do it. Let's not propose solutions that are pie in the sky. That's a grievance disguised as a policy. Now, energy is a real policy. I've been long, they should be investing. If you're going to invest hundreds of billions of dollars, which this government has done, why don't you build some high-speed rail? That should have been done years ago. So there's lots of things that we can do. Peter, you're on the line. What, what up? So I'm not a far right-wing guy, but this prime minister is not the one we solve our problems. And I have no issue with him singing when he's away in Britain. Um, but I have some really good concrete ideas. One of them, I was just shocked when Prime Minister Trudeau stated that there was no business case to supply Germany with liquid natural gas from Canada. Craziest thing I've ever heard. There's every business case, never mind the fact that we're in a war with an evil empire in Russia, there's a leader that does need to be removed as quickly as possible. So that's one of the ideas. The other idea I think this country needs is we need a massive decrease in federal government employees. I'm sorry, I know that's difficult for those who work for them, but the reality is that it's up 25% since he took power, and we don't have money to pay for it all. We need money for health care. We need money for education. We need money for roads. Etc. Um, I am dumbfounded at some of the stuff that comes out of that party that I think is far left-wing um, ideolo- ideologue instead of practical solutions. Yeah, yeah. let me respond to that. First of all, uh, uh, you talked about liquefied natural gas, LNG. Canada missed its yeah. window. You are 100% right. You have 100% hit the bullseye. Uh, In the last decade, the U.S., um, we are the fifth largest producer of natural gas, but we could have expanded our supply uh, and built the um, um, infrastructure to do it, but we didn't 
do it. And the U.S. Be, and, 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 and Australia in the last 10 years have quadrupled their um, exports of LNG. Um, you, can I just tell you something? Uh, since 2011, yeah. listen to this. You know how many LNG export facilities have been proposed in Canada? 13 in BC, 2 in Quebec, 3 in Nova Scotia, 18. Do you know how many we've been built and it's still under construction since then? One. In the U.S., in the last, in the last eight years, do you know how many they built? They've built seven and they've approved 20 more. I'm just giving you, so on, on LNG, folks, yep. you want a solution? You are 100% right. I know some people say, oh, it's a transition fuel. This is a long transition, and I could not agree with you more. Uh, they missed the window on LNG. I know there's lots of reasons for it, so I appreciate the call on that, Peter. Like, I, I'm glad you raised it. People should raise that issue. It's a massive one. Uh, Adam, thanks for the call, by the way, Peter. That's a, that's a super great point. Adam, what's up? So, so uh, I can so barely hear I, you, buddy. Go, go ahead. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I got you better. Okay. So, my training is as an econometrician, and the, you never, if you stop inflation, you never cut taxes. You raise taxes. And the biggest problem we've had over the last 15 or 20 years is the lowering and lowering and lowering. Um, you know, Adam, 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 I can't hear you. Nobody can hear you. I'm going to let you go. You got to call back in. And I don't mind if you do. I'll, I'll try to take your call, but I'd love to respond to you, uh, but I can't hear you. one 855 or 7-10-10. Someone just said, hey, I'm listening. This is Brian Nelson. You tweeted at me. I'm tweeting you back uh, as we speak, uh, buddy. Hey, I'm listening to News Talk 1010 in Toronto, and Evan Solomon says the World Economic Forum is just a conspiracy theory. Why do you think we don't trust the media, Evan? Have you listened to Klaus Schwab talk about how he's infiltrated the government? <laughs> Dude, Brian, anecdotes aren't data. You took one quote from an 87-year-old guy who runs a business forum that Stephen Harper attended multiple times, and you've decided to elevate it into a conspiracy theory. Please, sir, data. Give me data and facts. Don't give me little... Uh, quotes that you haven't heard. You think what? Do you think Klaus Schwab was controlling Stephen Harper and John Baird and Ed Fast? Do you think the whole Harper government, when he went and he announced at Davos that CPP was being cut from moved from sixty five to sixty seven, that was under the control of Klaus Schwab? Come on, I want real stuff. Like, I'm sorry, I have no patience for you taking one quote from some obscure dude in Davos who's not elected, has no influence. You have influence to vote. Let's look. I, I don't mind talking about practical solutions, dude. I just had a whole conversation with another caller instead of about a conspiracy theory about how we missed our LNG window. That's real. That's multi-billions of dollars. That's energy. That's a window that we need to close now. We need to get rather reopen and get back in the LNG game. That's a real solution, man. That helps Europe who need energy. That will help Canada. That will help bring billions of dollars here. That's a solution. That's what I'm saying. Get it done. Don't grieve it done. Don't fall for that crap. See, Brian, I love that you're calling me, but call me with data, not conspiracies. I'll take a break.
making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. All right, I, I didn't realize how, uh, how awesome this is going to be. I'm getting tons of texts and calls. Let's continue it. It's your show. I love the conversations. I'm feeling punchy, too. I feel like I want to uh, mix it up a bit. one 833 I got that Tuesday, you know. Let's go. Let's bring it on. one 833 or 71010. My contention today, as I asked you, what is the number one thing you wish a government would do right now to kickstart the economy? Let's set the scene. Inflation is down to 7%. Down. Ha. Huh. What world is that good news? 7% is a disaster. It's a disaster. Three times higher than it should be. Grocery up. Four to five Canadians, according to Angus Reid, are feeling a nasty pinch. And I told liberals are doing, look, they're spending a lot of money. They've spent a lot. I don't think everything they've done is bad. Of course not. The child benefit program, it's raised people out of poverty. It's been good. Child care is really expensive for people in big cities. I think those are going to be positive um, economic investments. They really are. I think they should have rolled back some of their big spending. I think they got way too many priorities. I think they should be incentivizing productivity way more. They never seem to get that done. I think their $4.5 billion affordability plan is not going to be have it will help some people, but it won't substantially turn around the economy. I think we've got to build more LNG. I think they should be way investing in a much better energy grid to use our natural resources in a good way. I think the conservatives have some practical solutions, but I think instead of getting it done, they grieve it. They too often mix it with grievances. One of my texters just said, Evan, what about the World Economic Forum? That stuff, it doesn't matter. It's not consequential. Like, honestly, focus on the big thing. You know what the main thing is? The main thing is the main thing. Don't get distracted by culture war BS that just pits one good Canadian against another. Culture war stuff that pits us to get against each other to rip down institutions that many Canadians fought hard to build on the right, the left, and the center. This is a great country. This is an incredible country. We are lucky to be here. We should have robust debates about where we want it to go, but we shouldn't accuse people of being in the hawk of some crappy conspiracy theory or that our elections aren't are fraudulent or people are traitors or we should be locked up or, you know, that you're, you're under some kind of, uh, the government, some kind of neo-fascist. These are, these are terms that make no sense when you look at what's going on in Ukraine and you look at what's going on in Russia, you look at what's going on in China. Look, we're a free country with political disagreements. We need to increase productivity. We need to increase the healthcare system. We need to have some new ideas on some fundamental things to make our prosperity grow. But we don't need to have grow at the expense of pitting each other against each other. We've got natural resources. It's practical. We should use them. But let's not get caught up in these dark eddies of culture wars where we end up believing in things that aren't fact-based, they're tiny little anecdotes, and, and, and it just breeds more distrust. Oh, I hate the media, I hate science, I hate the government, I hate lawyers, I hate, like, I hate all experts. No, we're Canadians. Whether you work in a trade or whether you're a doctor or whether you're a hard-working nurse, like, we all need better solutions. We need a better health care system that doesn't cost as much, but actually cares for the sick, the elderly, and cuts down wait times. We need an economy with productivity. Yes, we need to tackle climate because it's a real thing, but not at the expense of everyday lives. 
So let's have real answers. I'm open to them. This is not a show that's uh, raising the blue flag or the red flag or the orange flag. I want a practical solution so somebody who does raise one of those colors goes swipes the idea. Sunny in Toronto at 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. What's your number one? What do you think a government, whoever it was, should do? What you would you like to see right now as the main priority? Well, it, it depends how you want to look at it because the first thing that I think that we need is to cure the healthcare system. That is number one, in my opinion. But generally speaking, if everybody seems to be harping on inflation. Inflation, if you look at it, you cannot cure inflation if you say it's a worldwide problem. You have to have the buy-in of the other parts of the world in order to cure inflation. And then we also have to look at that inflation is also caused by gouging at the moment. You cannot tell me that there are people in our society that are taking advantage of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Because I would never believe it that our price increases. I'll just give you the simple one. is gas prices. Mm. Gas prices have come down from about 60 cents in the last month or two months. Right? But oil is at $82 a barrel. And they're talking tonight, they're putting up the gas price by three cents. So who's actually causing, because you, and and just to reinforce that, whenever the gas price went up, immediately they put the price up of the uh, gas at the tank. Okay, so 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 okay. So let let me just, uh, Sonny. I appreciate the call, and I I just want to get to a lot of other people. Let me just respond uh, on energy one eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. One on inflation. I know inflation has multiple causes. It does, but obviously governments can do something. That's why inflation in in England is eighteen percent, and inflation in Japan is two point six percent, and inflation in Canada is seven percent. Obviously, domestic governments have a role in terms of spending, in terms of policy. Policy matters. Now, it can't affect everything. Global economies. We're in a globalized world. I understand that. On the second thing on energy prices, well, there is something that government should look at. I'll give you an idea. You're getting jacked at the pump back in May. In the first quarter of this year, Shell, Exxon, BP, Chevron, and ConocoPhillips, the top five oil companies, how much was their profit this year? Now, their profit was $35 billion. How much was that up over last year? 300%. I'm just saying the energy companies in the last year are making buck bank. Now, you tell me, should a government look at that? Now, they had suffered before, but they are making record profits. Now, you don't always want to punish a company that's making profits, but I will say this. When you're up 300% and, you're, and, and the gas prices are getting gouged, guys like Sonny are going to call in and say, who's winning? I agree with that. Mark in Toronto, what's up? Yeah, the, the kind of thinking that you just said is the reason we're in trouble. $35 billion. Do you know how much it costs to invest in oil and gas? This is the reason we're in such a big problem. I, I'd wager a bet that the 11% on food prices is mainly caused by energy. And we are in dreamland. The prices are going nothing but up because of people like you saying we're going to punish these companies. They have whoa, 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 whoa. I, didn't, well, I, I just, just I literally didn't say we should. I, and first of all, when you talk about investment, I'm talking about you have to look at the data. Like, I'm, ha- I'm happy. Let's just make sure we're arguing on the same terms. I'm just going to give you. 
Imperial Oil had its best quarter in 30 years, and it had a net. I'm just, I'm just remember, it yep, had a ahead. net income of 1.1 billion dollars. These are profits. So after they've invested and developing, they're racking profits up. I'm not suggesting there's a solution there. Sonny's asking about why we're getting gouged. And I'm just saying it's interesting that the record prices have led to record profits. Okay, I'm not talking about so record. Those are two different things. So they're, 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 they're refining capacity and, and research and exploration are totally different. You have to invest billions, $50 billion, $100 billion in, in, natu- in natural gas, in oil exploration. The problem here is we pushed this green platform too far in front, and the government did it. And we are all going to pay for it for the next but, 20 but, but years. But give me an example. Like, first of all, I literally just had a segment saying we got to invest more in LNG and get that done. Now you're saying I'm against energy. I don't really understand. You're pushing against an open door, pal. But well, what? Because, what, because you gotta, what, what about pipelines? You don't, you don't have I just LNG said they bought a pipeline. The Trans Mountain Pipeline is a $20 billion <laughs> pipeline. There, what pipeline What pipeline Evan, is there Evan, a proponent? No, no. You Evan. tell me what pipeline there's a proponent for and, and how fast you can build it. That's my question. Well, the problem is you, you just answered my question. The, the answer is you can't build it fast. So what's happened in the last 10 years, 15 years, we've been on this agenda. We've got to get off it. We've got to get off it. I agree with it. But the problem is you can't have an agenda that says we got to get off it, and then at the same time just hope. No, no, but hold on. I, I don't, but see, you and I, oh, God, I want to continue this. I'm hitting a break here, but I love this conversation. We've got it. There's a transition. Man, let's continue after the break. Hang in there. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. This is the strangest legal battle, and as a dog owner, a puddle, who's now uh, 11 and a half, when I heard about Greg Marantet's story, a man from Windsor, his dog Lemmy, Metallica, stolen by his former dog walker, get this, four years ago. Now, we spoke with Greg on this program on August 11th when Tamar Cherry was hosting. And, and, and here's the thing. Let me just remind you. Greg uh, has been basically in a legal battle with his former dog walker, Samantha Roberts, who was hired by Greg to walk Lemmy. Greg joins me now. What happened then, Greg? Oh, hi, Evan. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, well, uh, you know, the police would not help, so we had to take it to civil court, and it was a four-year process, basically, to uh, expel all of her legal maneuvering and her lawyer's legal maneuvering. It went to the highest court in Ontario, and we've won every verdict all the way to the highest court. But still, she will not return the dog. But I don't understand. What's her claim? Samantha Roberts, you say, and, you know, um, she's supposed to be in court this Friday. Like, the, Lemmy's a black Newfoundland dog. You buy him. You hire Samantha to walk him. Like, what's her claim on the dog? I don't understand that. She's a dog walker. She is insane. And um, the, the, her claim is that, first of all, she claimed I was a co-owner, which she tried to defend in court forever. And... Since the court order is now return the dog, he was never yours. There was never an agreement to own the dog jointly. 
now she's claiming that I abandoned my dog for four years, which would mean that she, I abandoned my dog before he was even born. So the story just gets weirder and weirder mm-hmm. and more lies get spread and more lies. I don't even think she knows the lies she told to defend him on oh, okay. anymore. Now, now I'm speaking to Greg. So by the way, I think I, I just said Lemmy was uh, Metallica and it's, of course it's Motorhead. Oh my God. Motorhead. I right. can't even believe I just said Metallica. Uh, <laughs> and then when I, when I met Motorhead, ah, sorry, yeah. Motorhead fans. Uh, and of course, uh, Lemmy's gone now. So you've obviously mm-hmm. named your dog after the Motorhead. Ah, <sighs> uh, you got Lemmy. Like, this is important. I want people to know. This is not just a dog. Uh, no. You've had PTSD because you had a motorcycle crash uh, about, what, in, like, 2013. So what happened? Um, yeah, I broke my back, um, my hip, my femur. And, um, you know, the doctors put me all back together with a bunch of steel and stuff. And um, I was on the couch for basically two years. Um just immobile because uh, the bones weren't um, healing. So once uh, they helped, they started to heal and I could start actually doing something. I didn't have the ambition to get out in society at all anymore. So Lemmy was the, the dog that saved me to go on walks every day, to get back outside, to start exercising again. And he was much more than just a dog to keep me company. He saved my life, you know by getting me off the couch and I wasn't going to neglect him because I didn't feel like doing anything. So it was more important that he got his walk right. than me think about my PTSD issues. So it got me back out, which is amazing. You know, yeah, well, dog, dogs are, are miracle workers. They're walking coaches, they're life coaches. They're, I Absolutely. Mean, there are so many di- different things. So, y- you know, I- I'm with you. Um, so now after all these years, what, is there any chance that you're going to get Lemmy back now? Oh, yeah. Yes, because now we have changed it from a civil issue to a criminal issue. Now, we went to court to get the criminal ball rolling last Friday, and um, I was given the wrong time of the court. This is our justice system. I was given the wrong time of court, and the, the court was heard at 9 in the morning instead of 1130 when I was there. So I went down to the Crown's office to find out the disclosure on what happened. And um, a prosecutor came up and said, I will take this. And she sat down and talked to me. And she is personally invested in prosecuting Samantha and sticking her in jail if she does not return this dog by a hard deadline, which she is going to get a hold of her attorney to give him. Okay, but wait, wait. So, so, so... You missed your court date on Friday. Well, I didn't miss it. I was just there as a spectator. She okay. was supposed to show up. She was summoned to court. She just sent her lawyer. Okay, and she didn't show up. Okay, so no. you but so you missed it. But now it's coming to a head. Have you? When was it? So, like, is she around there? Like, do you know where she is? Do you know where Lemmy is? Um, this is the thing. Ever since we hit her house with the sheriff to get the dog, she was there. Lemmy wasn't which is completely blowing her service dog story out of the water. Um, she's been hiding the dog. She's been hiding her car. She's been hiding herself um, away from the sheriff and, and things. But she did get counsel because she knows she's going to criminal court now. I don't know. This is so weird. Like, I'm sorry. It's, like, it's unbelievable. It's so it's weird. Like, insane. you hire a dog walker, and she kind of walks off with your dog. And Lemmy's a Newfoundlander. Like, 
Lemmy's got to be how old right now? Like, um, Lemmy's he's got to be, be six. Like, for these dogs yeah, only live, like, I hate to say it, they don't live like a Newfoundlander, like a 10-year-old Newfoundlander is an old dog. You're right, because they're giant breeds. Their, yeah. their lifespan is anywhere between eight and 10 years. Yeah, yes, yeah. Right. Like, like Lemmy's going to start getting old. Like, you're so absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I, well, do, when she said to you that you could have an agreement to co-parent the dog, BS? All BS. All BS. I would never give my dog away. Knowing what he did for me, you know, why would I ever give my dog away? Just... And, and this person, you know, never owned a dog in her life. Now she's uh, some genius dog trainer all of a sudden. She started a business and she's frauding people that's saying she can... Train their dogs to be service dogs. I, okay, so how does she have? Is she still in business? Uh, as far as we know, the, the site crashed. Thank God. But I mean, I just wanted people to be warned that you know, don't be, do your homework, ask for credentials, ask you know how long this process will take and how she how she can actually train your dog to do this, because she doesn't have the credentials to do it, and. She's frauding people, and uh, I feel bad for them. I've got so many tips on, on the Lemmy tip line saying that they, she brought their dog to her. She never thought she would do something like this, but now they know about her, and they don't have their dogs there anymore. And, by the way, they're not service dogs either. So so how, so, how, how where's the end for this thing, Greg? The end for this is the dog being returned and her in jail. That's that's where her end. I don't know if she. I don't know whether she goes in jail or maybe she just maybe she gets fine. But either way, you just want the dog back. I'll tell you what the prosecutor told me. She said when something like this happens in our community and everybody is aware of it, we are very in tune to it too. We're upset, and she goes, "I will be seeking jail time if she does not comply." If she well, so. Yeah. Uh, listen, I just hope you know. Like I hope this is resolved. Um, and oh, me I, too. I hope, you know, um, it's been you know, too long too long and 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 what talk about you know you get a dog to help with your ptsd and and this has caused you nothing but anxiety what what a disaster hey um, absolutely i wake up every morning shaking you know ah greg uh well listen man uh you're in windsor ontario uh we hope you get reunited with lemmy soon greg thanks for telling us your story i really appreciate it this is a sad and weird story and, and and i know what it's like to love your dog and miss him thanks man Coming up, two brothers fighting over the same mayor race. Both brothers who haven't spoken in 30 years are on the show next, but they won't be together. But we'll talk to them. Stay with us. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. All politics are local, but this one is beyond local. It's in the same family. Two brothers who haven't spoken in 30 years are vying to become the mayor of Port Colburn. And this is a story that's so interesting. We've got both of them on. Now, uh, I'm going to bring on, not together, uh, but Bill Steele is the incumbent mayor of Port Colburn. His only opponent is his brother, Charles, who's running against him. Uh, and they are going to join us. Mr. Steele, mayor, I guess you're the incumbent mayor. First of all, thanks for joining us. Uh, and I really appreciate you uh, you, you joining us. Uh, this is such an odd story. I know you're getting a lot of media requests. Were you surprised when your, 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 your brother decided to run against you? 
Uh, thanks for having me on, Evan. Appreciate it. Love your show. Um, uh, yeah, I guess a little bit. Uh, you know, you never think somebody's going to run against you from your own family, but that's, you know, we were geared up for an election this year, and uh, we we're looking for uh, forward to campaigning, and and uh, we're our team is ready to go door to door like we always have, and we're going to move on from there. Okay, so so your brother signs up. Um, I, like I got a brother. What happened? Like, uh, part of me, this is I'm sad that you haven't spoken to your brother in 30 years. Like, what happened there? So, so I've got a brother, David, not Charles. So I just want to make that clear. His name is David. He's always been known as David. Um, He's changed so, his name to Charles, right? Uh, I guess, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, his full name is Charles David William, but he's he grew up as David. Everybody in the town knows him as David. So, but anyways. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate he made a lot of bad decisions in his life and uh, alienated our family many years ago. And, you know, there are six of us. And, uh, you know, that's really all I'm going to say about my competition because Evan, I've told every media outlet, I've never spoken uh, about my competition during campaigns, whether it was for right. counselor for my 17 years or the, the 2018 mayor's race here in Port Colburn. Uh, I'm here to get Bill Steele reelected and, and talk about our accomplishments and what we're going to do to move the city forward and into the future. You have been a city councillor for 17 years and the mayor since 2018. You have pretty darn deep roots there. Now, has your brother been involved in politics before? Not that I know of. Oh, so this is like, this is out of the clear blue. He's just, now you were, if he didn't run, would you have run unopposed? I guess, yeah, because he came in late uh, in the game as far as, uh, I think basically the nomination day, but nobody else had put their name in up to them. So no, I, I would have been acclaimed, which is which is fine. I was acclaimed once uh, when I was a counselor, which was which was fun. Uh, but uh, you know, I, again, you know, early on when we announced right away when nominations opened that uh, we we're going to run our campaign, our team got together and uh, you know we were planning on having an election, which you always should should do. You shouldn't take things for granted, for and sure. then uh, you know that's where we are today. Okay, so by the way, I love the, your town. I know it well. Uh, um, having Good. I drive back and forth, you know, between Ottawa and Toronto, and uh, up and down for one and all that. Uh, Bill, I'm speaking to Bill Steele. Yeah, we're the, in Niagara, Evan. We're not. Yeah, I know. I, I know that. Yeah. I know, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I know where Port you, Colburn don't, don't is. Don't think of us. Don't think of us as Colburn. We're Port Colburn. <laughs> I know you're Port Colburn. I, well, well, you know Wally Senzik is the mayor of St. Catharines in your hood, uh, which you were yep. near in that area. He's an old friend of mine. Uh, yeah, and so I know that. Old, too. Yeah, he's a good buddy of mine. Actually, you know, I he, he and I like 25 years ago uh, were business partners in something, a little magazine. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, so I know that area a bit. But Bill, you got deep roots there, right? Yeah, my family's been here since the late 1700s, right after and during the American Revolution. Two brothers uh, uh, left the, the U.S. or or the 13 colonies at the time and uh, came to Kingston, and they were given. Uh, Crown land here in Port Colborne. They started the farm to farm uh, each uh, the west end of the city and the east end of the city. And then uh, my side, which grew up on the west end of the city, uh, became uh, developers in the natural gas business. We had a company called Sterling Gas. Uh, my dad was in the insurance business, which he took over from one of his uncles who passed away in 1939. My dad went off as a fighter pilot during the war. So he fought uh, in England and, and Europe after D-Day. Um, and, uh, you know, I got the insurance business with my dad in, in the early 80s, and then I purchased his shares from him 
in uh, the early 90s when he retired. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm lucky. My, my dad passed away in 2016. He was 99 years old. He stayed in the insurance business for, for almost 50 years, and, and I've been uh, just mm-hmm. turned uh, 40 years. So, yeah, a lot of roots. My dad was a, a advocate of, of giving back to the community. He was a big volunteer and, and worked in a lot of organizations as well as myself. I've coached minor hockey. I've been involved with the Lions Club, the JCs. So, so uh, like a lot of people yeah. might say, like, if you, you know, if you want to be a leader, like, solve the family crisis and then you can solve the civic crisis, if you know what I mean. Like, can't you just resolve the family thing and show, look, I, you're a bridge builder kind of guy, Bill Steele? Yeah, I mean, you know, Evan, as I said, uh, you know, people make uh, decisions and, you know, God knows the family tried, but uh, it is where it is today. But, you know, we're moving forward as a leader. And, uh, you know, I, I, I learned something very early on in, in, in politics is the fact that uh, actually I, I was at a conference and and one of the keynote speakers made the statement, it's easy to lead with negative but it's harder to uh, bring us together. You know, uh, that's where we are. I, I work on the hard things and, and, and getting partnerships for the municipality and moving so, so, so forward. He's, he's waiting so. to talk. I know you don't want to talk to him. Any message for him or yeah. no? No, I mean, we're here to, to get Bill Steele reelected, and that's that's okay. what our, 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 <laughs> our key platform is here. All right. Well, well Bill, that's first really of all, I, I really love talking to you. I, I mean it. And I hope all this yep. works out for both of you and for Port Colburn. But I'm going to jump to, 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 your, to your brother and your opponent. But I hope we speak again, Mr. Steele. That is Bill Steele. He's the incumbent mayor of Port Colburn. And he's running against his uh, brother, Charles Steele. And I know you guys won't talk, Charles, but... You know, Bill, Bill says he's just not, he hasn't talked to you in 30 years, and, and he's not talking to you now. What, what, what do you say to that, sir? First of all, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Could the, ba- the mayor, uh, Boris, even uh, your listeners even more? He's been in, in the uh, uh, councillor mayor for 17 years. All we've had is higher tax rates, uh, water rates. Um, seniors are finding much harder to make ends meet. Uh, he, his big thing is cruise ships. He wants to spend over $10 million. It was in the uh, local paper. And as soon as the cruise ships come in, they, they get on buses and they go to the falls and Niagara and the lake. Uh, we're on the verge of losing our hospital because of Doug Ford cutbacks. It's just not poor Coleman. It's also uh, Welland. Um, we have a bad homeless problem in the city. Affordable housing is non-existent. Where has he been for the last 17 years? Yeah, he's been a counselor a for 17 years. He's been the mayor since 2018. Right. So, but he's been at least, he's he's had his foot in the game here. What decide, Why did you decide to get in? Like, have you ever you've never well, run before? Why I now? Demo- I believe in democracy. I mean, if he would have been acclaimed, like in Ontario, there's a lot of acclamations going on right now, and more people have to get involved. Unfortunately, people don't want to. We don't. You don't get a lot of voter turnout. I'd like to see that turned around. Uh, can can you tell have... us what the beef is between the brothers, though? Like, like I get that I you have, have different enough. political views, but what's yeah. the family beef? Well, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. I went to Toronto at 18 years old, got a job as a mailman in, in Toronto, and uh, I know what it's like to live on a fixed income. And I know the hardship that seniors and uh, low-income people are having. He has to start showing humanity instead of giving uh, tax breaks to uh, build luxury condominiums. And, um, you know, Bill, you know, Bill, he wants to build that $10 million or more pavilion. We have to show some humanity and we have to start helping people. 
He hasn't done anything ever since he got into politics. Yeah, but this is what they're doing. They're pushing, oh, you know, affordable housing. But hmm. where were they in the last 17 years? It's so not so, so you, you're going to run. I just got about 30 seconds. So you, Charles Steele, okay. you're running at your brother, Bill Steele. Uh, if you don't win, are you going to try to get involved in politics as a, as a city councillor? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm going to try to keep people aware of the uh, problems of the poor and uh, money going to uh, special interests that does not uh, help the uh, the city. Mm. Well, well, listen, first of all, I really appreciate both of you. you for, I love that you're both committed to helping your communities, obviously from different ways, and you got criticism, and I hope you resolve the family dispute. But, Mr. Steele, thank you. I also appreciate you coming on. And I you know people are caught up in the family dynamic, but at least you're both throwing it down to try to... Get involved for your communities, which I appreciate, uh, by the way. Mr. Steele, thank you. Good luck to you and good luck to your brother as well. Uh, I got to take a break. Uh, we got a great story on the other side. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Dryden is coming up to talk about the Summit Series in his new book, The Great Hall of Fame Goalie, a former politician. Great new book about the uh, 72 Summit Series 50 years ago this month. But speaking of hockey, um, and credit to our, our good friend, the investigative reporter at TSN, Rick Westhead, who said, quote, a marketing research firm working with Hockey Canada is asking parents and others to complete a survey addressing Hockey Canada's sexual abuse scandal, Rick writes. One question asked if respondents agree or disagree with this statement. Quote, the level of criticism by the media towards Hockey Canada is overblown. Hey, Hockey Canada. And I remember, I was a coach. I coached my kid for a decade and with a bunch of great parents who gave hard-earned money and lots of time to Hockey Canada. Coaches, managers, trainers. You deserve the criticism because you're talking about sexual abuse. But Lisa Wallace is a freelance sports writer for the Canadian press covering the Ottawa Senators and the Red Blacks. She's also, like me, a mom of a minor hockey player. Hi, Lisa. How are you? (laughs) This stuff. Like, can you frickin' believe getting this question? (laughs) Like, I mean, let's just forget, forget being a journalist for just like two seconds. Like, you're a parent. You've, you're paying money for so your kids can play hockey. You're probably like me, a volunteer. You're active, and you get this. What, what's your what's your uh, what was your take? Uh, you know, when I first opened, I saw the survey, and at first I was like, oh, "What are they? What are they going to actually ask?" And then I started, you know, going through it, and literally I was shaking my head. And my son happened to be kind of in nearby and he's like what's your what are you doing what's your problem and i was like i'm answering a hockey canada survey and he started looking at some of the questions and even he was like oh my god like are they why are they even asking this do they not have a clue what's going on and i think one of my favorites was you know um discontinue the use of membership fees to cover uninsured sexual misconduct claims agree or you know do you agree should you and i was like are you? Are you uh, there's a tough one. No, please use my hockey fees so you guys can cover up for sexual abuse or right. Like, 
Yeah, I I just feel you know you you read some of these questions and you can't help but think they don't get it. They don't understand the feeling that Canadians in general, not only hockey parents, but just Canadians in general feel about the things that have come out and the reputation for Hockey Canada. Because I do have friends, right? They're kids. They play soccer, basketball, whatever. And they're just, they're appalled at the stories. And and that's not to say that it doesn't happen in other sports. I think, right, just the lens that hockey falls under in Canada um, makes it that much bigger. But it's it's time for a change. And for me, you know, as a journalist, as a parent, as a mother, I just kind of shake my head and go, how have even, you know, junior hockey camps opened? And we're not hearing about new programs that are being launched to help deal with consent or inform these young players. Like, I feel it's a really missed opportunity right now for minor hockey programs, for them even to take the lead mm-hmm. and instill some change. Let, let, let's just do quick a reminder from people, Lisa. Speaking of Lisa Wallace, freelance sports writer for the Canadian Press, covers the Senators and the Ottawa Red Blacks, mom of a minor hockey player. Uh, Lisa, first of all, I always like to call this stolen victimization. You know, the re- just, and let's remind people of the the alleged victims here because. Um, you know, Hockey Canada, by asking these questions, like, they're the victims of a media conspiracy. Like, oh, we're the victims here. Not the alleged um, victims of what could be eight CHL players whose names we don't know who were part of the men's junior world hockey team that allegedly sexually assaulted a woman of 20 in, in 2018. Um, and others, by the way. Can you just remind us, because I, I don't want Hockey Canada to... to to steal the victimization in this ridiculous survey. Who are the alleged real victims here? Well, and this is the thing, right? You think of the number of parents who, you know, they make sacrifices to allow their kids to play this sport because let's face it, hockey is not a cheap sport for most families, whether it is just paying your registration fees and equipment. So, you, you've now taken, I mean, I look back on the money we've paid and I am disgusted to think that some of those membership fees helped cover sexual misconduct claims when, you know, I go into it with the best of intentions. It's players who've been, you know, robbed of opportunity of even just to be, you know, I think there's a, there's a pride of thinking, oh, I'm part of Hockey Canada. And now it's, it just kind of taints everything about um, the sport in general. And that's not to say that there aren't some really great, you know, whether it's players, coaches, managers, everything about it. But right now, I think there's just such a bad taste in people's mouths about the sport and Hockey Canada just seems to be, you know, deaf to the complaints and the the feeling out there. I, I, I felt the same way. But just everybody who who's kids or who played hockey, it is bloody expensive. Tournament fees, equipment fees, oh, right. membership, and then the time and all the goodwill that so many parents and kids put in there, and then you find out that they've hush hush been covering this stuff up. Uh, it's been a joke. And then this survey, by the way, who's paying for? Uh, hey, Hockey Canada, here's a question: Who paid for the survey? Are right. is this survey also coming out of membership fees? I'd like to know that. Yeah, and I I so want to see them publicly release 
the the comments that have come from this survey because there is an opportunity right throughout where you can kind of just write your own answers and that's where I want is for them to come out and be like wow we didn't realize this was the feeling but I think we'll be waiting a long time for them to make that kind of acknowledgement because if you don't have that um, realization by now I think it just shows the need, right, for change right from the ground up within. Well, well, the idea that they can ask the level of criticism by the media towards hockey candidates, quote, overblown, strongly agree, somewhat agree. (laughs) First of all, the fact that they, they're concerned about that, number exactly. one. Number two, the fact that they're, they're going to measure that as if that will calibrate their response instead of, we understand now that we've lost trust, as the president supposedly said, at, in front of members of parliament when he was quizzed, and now we get it. They clearly don't get it because they're fishing around for an answer. Yeah, it's as if they, you know, I looked at this and it was kind of like, I think they're trying to, to make themselves believe that, oh, no, it's just the media who's making us look bad. Other people think we're doing a great job, right? I mean, even one of the questions where it was, uh, how do you feel about Hockey Canada performed in terms of addressing the issue? I'm <laughs> like, oh, my gosh, really? You you don't know how people feel about this yet, that you need to put it out to a survey? I, so did uh, you fill it out, Lisa? I did. I did. And I and I put in my final comment um, saying that I, I specifically asked for the full results to be released publicly and that change be implemented and that I felt, you know, there needed to be wholesale changes from board of their board of governors or board of directors right through, you know, their president. I just think you can't keep the people who are there who allowed these things to be, you know, swept under the rug and make me believe that suddenly you're going to change and do things properly. Like, no, that's, that's insanity. It is so insane. By by how many more years does your kid have? I got about 10 seconds here. So he's, uh, he's 15. So potentially, you know, maybe two, three years kind of thing. And, and that's where I wonder, I go, am I going to still be, you know, I'll still be a hockey parent. But will I be, you know, being seeing the changes that I think really yeah. need to happen? And I'm hoping I will, but I, I don't I think sure the so. level that needs I, to be Listen, done. I will say this. Hockey Canada had made some, some changes over the years. They need way more. And, and, and sticking your finger up in the air to try to figure out if criticism over covering up allegations of sexual abuse is overblown ain't a good sign. Lisa Wallace, freelance sports writer for the Canadian Press, covering the Ottawa Senators and Red Blacks and a mom of a minor hockey player. Thanks, Lisa. Appreciate it. Ken Dryden's on the other side of a break. As this story changes, we react. This is the Evan Solomon Show. I'm really disappointed. I am completely disappointed. I cannot believe it. Some of our guys are really, really down in the dumps. We know we're trying. What the hell? I mean, we're we're doing the best we can. Does that go down in one of the great speeches in Canadian history? Game four at Vancouver's Pacific Coliseum. It is 1972. 
Canada has had a bad game against the then Soviet Union. Soviets win 5-3. Remember, Canada was supposed to kick their butts. And then that was the great Phil Esposito. Skates onto the rink and gives a very famous speech. And he kept talking and he was getting booed. And all this was part of a a memory. I, I read over the last couple nights a great new book by a guy who was my hero growing up. I imitated him in that. I got to know him later in one of the thrills of my life when he entered politics. The author, the lawyer, the Hall of Fame goalie, Ken Dryden, who was just written a new book about the 1972 Summit Series, maybe the most important hockey series, certainly in in Canadian history, maybe one of the most important in the world. And his new book is called What I Remember, What It Felt Like, What It Feels Like Now, the series. And he's, of course, part of a great new documentary on CBC about the Summit Series that my pal Nick DePonsier has put together. And a pleasure to welcome Ken Dryden to the program. Mr. Dryden, sir, how are you doing, Ken? I'm fine, Evan. How are you? God, that speech by Esposito. What do you remember about that? Well, the thing is, of course, I mean, we didn't hear it. We're in the we're in the dressing room. We've we've uh, we've lost, and and uh, there are no TVs in the dressing room, and players don't hang around uh, listening to other players being interviewed at the end of a game. I don't think I knew about it. And I'm sure most of the players didn't for a couple of weeks after, if not uh, months and, and years after. Um, I think the I think the impact that it had, and 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 as you say, I mean it was it was it was a great speech. I mean it was I mean it was an answer to a question. It wasn't it wasn't it didn't set out he didn't set out to make a speech, but it was it, it was exactly the answer that was so critical at the moment and not just what he said, but the way he said it. And that, and that up until that time, I mean, as you you related, I mean, this is the end of the, the Canada portion of the series. We're down two games to one with a game tied. Now we're heading off to Moscow and, and, uh, uh, and the Canadian fans, as Phil said, are really, I mean, as we were really disappointed, they are really disappointed. I mean, beyond disappointed, they're angry. And they're angry not only that that we uh, are down in the series that we were supposed to dominate, but that that it was the way in which we were down. I mean that that we were these professional players; they were supposed to be the amateurs. The World Hockey Association was around now; uh, uh, salaries were skyrocketing. Um, we we had agents now. Uh, we carried around attaché cases. Um, clearly, we didn't care. And clearly, the fans cared, and and this was outrageous, and that's why they were so angry uh, at us, and they booed us throughout the the game. And then Phil says what he says, and and to an audience at home that is feeling that way about us, and then they look at Phil, they look at his face, and the sweat is pouring down his face, and his skin is hanging, and he's saying these words, and clearly, this is a guy who cares. I mean, this is this is direct a, a direct you know ex- expression back to what everybody was feeling, and I think that mm. from from that point on, really, it was kind of, it was a instead of an us and them, meaning us the players, and them meaning the Canadian fans, it became an us, 
And uh, and it was, well, let's, you know, we're off to Moscow and let's see what we can do. Speaking of Ken Dryden, Hall of Fame goal, he was part of that. I mean, you were shellacked in one of those games uh, early on, I think the first game or the second game. And, no, it was the first game. Oh, the first game, that's right. You were shellacked. And, 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 and people don't realize that. Like, like I, one of the things I love about your book is I, people don't remember, we all remember the Paul Henderson goal. And, and of course, it's, you know, how victory kind of sheds, puts this penumbra of light over the struggle. But that was, there was no sure thing there. When did you realize that this was more, first of all, that you guys went for a, a battle that you didn't even expect. These guys were way better. And that Ken Dryden, this was more than just a hockey series. This, this, was, a, this was a symbolic and political battle. Well, I, 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 knew, I knew the answer to the second part right from the beginning because, I mean, I, I was born in 1947. Uh, I was a hockey fan all of my life. And, and my first international hockey memory was in 1955, and I was seven years old, and I remember listening to the radio broadcast on CBC of the final game between the Penticton V's and the Soviet national team. And, and the Russians had won the world championship the year before, had stunned everybody because they had only started playing hockey eight years before in 1946. And so, you know, the, the, not only did Canada lose the world championships, but we lost to the Russians. And so we were all listening, and the game was so important that Foster Hewitt, who was the voice of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the voice of of, of hockey, really, in English Canada uh, for decades, he went to Europe to broadcast uh, that game. And, 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 and Penticton won five to nothing. And so, I mean, you know, we're watching that. And, and then watching, or you know, we weren't even watching, we we're listening in years later, the Whitby Dunlops, the Belleville McFarlands, the Trail Smoke Eaters, um, they won the world championships, but then by the early 1960s, it was it was over. The, the, the Europeans were getting to be too good. The Russians were too good. Yeah. And the senior teams weren't good enough. And then Father Bauer created a national team of players um, out of junior who were good junior players, but the best ones still went on to the NHL. Right. And as the decade played out, we just it was just clear that Canada couldn't win, and the completely annoying thing for any of us during that time was that we knew we were the best. Um, all the hockey countries in the world knew we were the best. The Soviets knew we were the best, and every year they were called world champions. And that was just totally infuriating. So that was the backdrop uh, as the puck was dropped in Montreal uh, on September the 2nd in 1972. That's what was inside us as players. That's what was inside 19,000 hmm. people in the forum and 22 million Canadians across the country. What's amazing, I got two minutes, then we'll take a break and we'll come back with Ken Dryden. What's crazy is they were, they were ahead of us on fitness. The Russians were training, and, and when I read your book and others, you guys were kind of partying. Well, I, I, actually, I wouldn't, I, that's not what I wrote, that's not what I believe, and I don't think that was the case. I think that what, what was the case was that the, the way in which hockey was played and, and, and developed and, and trained for at that particular time is NHL seasons 
would end by the end of March. The next season wouldn't begin until early October. There were about five months in there, and this was the off-season. For many of those years, because salaries weren't that high, a lot of players had second jobs. Yeah, they had to work. Players. Yeah, they had to work You know, during, during the summer. And so what you did is that you, you basically, you know, you, you know, you play golf, you might play tennis, you might do a little bit of jogging, but that was it. The idea was not to gain weight over the summer so that when training camp began and training camps were a lot longer, you would gradually get your way into shape. And by the time the season began, you were in decent shape and you'd get in better shape. But the, the key of all of that was is that you were up against players who were preparing themselves in exactly the same way. Right. Everybody. Oh, okay. Ken, Ken, hang on. I got to take a break. But you're right. And of course, the Russians have been preparing in a different way. I'm speaking to Ken Dryden about his new book, The Series, as we mark 50 years of the Summit Series. And he's back next. Talking to the newsmakers every day. The conversation continues with Evan Solomon. Cornwaye, here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab work spell. Here's another shot right by the door. Well, that may be the most famous goal in Canadian history, Paul Henderson, who'd scored a number of game winners in the famous Summit Series that is being commemorated 50 years ago by a documentary series on the CBC and a great new book by Ken Dryden called The Series, What I Remember, What It Felt Like, What It Feels Like Now, one of the two goalies for Team Canada, and of course went on to be a Hall of Fame goalie, and he joins me now. I mean, we all remember the Paul Henderson goal, but the... But What's remarkable is the lead up to there. Um, what was it like to go back? Because, you know, athletes usually remember almost everything, Ken Dryden. You know, you, you talk to an old pitcher, like, I remember in the ninth inning 30 years ago, I threw, a, you know, a slider and it was outside. I should have thrown a fastball. So much of what you talk about that I found fascinating in your book, Ken Dryden, is is your memories are very, uh, a lot of details are missing because you're in it in the moment. What was it like to, to go back and kind of look at this series that we all have obsessed about for 50 years? Yeah, yeah that, that's, a, that's a good point. And, and that's really what I had to do. And I knew I had to do it. And, and the, the idea of, of, of doing the book was, um, it was a little bit for, for people who were, old enough to have a first-hand memory of it and for them to have a chance to revisit it. But to a great extent, it was for the great majority of Canadians who, would, who are you know, living now and in Canada who would have no first-hand memory whatsoever. And the only thing that they would have heard about that series would have been second or third-hand from parents or grandparents and, and kind of legendary lore that is always a little suspicious and you're never quite sure that you can believe it. And you have your own reference points. You have the 87 Canada Cup uh, with Gretzky and Lemieux. You have the 2010 Vancouver Olympics with Crosby's uh, Golden Goal. And so why, why would this series be different from them uh, other than it's the story of my father or my grandparents uh, telling it. Uh, 
Yeah, why and, does it matter now? A lot of people might well, ask. That's right. And so, you know, the, the idea was that oh, if, 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 if it's worth talking about, I've got to put them in, into that moment. Just as you're describing um, uh, for me is that I had to go back into the moment myself in order to put any reader back into that moment so that at the end of the book, they might say, ah, oh, I get it now. I get it why it's commemorated 50 years later, why the 87 Canada Cup, as great as it was, it's kind of fading somewhat from memory. And even the Vancouver Golden Goal, it doesn't seem like it will last as, as, you know, as a 50-year memory. And, and, and so, you know, that was the, you know, and, and so, you know, the difficult part when you're, when you're reliving it is that you're reliving lousy moments as well as triumphant moments. And so it meant reliving the first game in Montreal and losing seven to three in a game that we couldn't lose. We, you know, we were going to, we scored the first two goals of the game within six minutes. We were, we were going to dominate and we lost. And then, you know, the, the, the rest of that up and down and, and who knows where anything is going to go. You have to relive those things. And it's like, like I've never watched. Hang on, I know that I can't say that once when I was doing a CBC series at the end of right. 1980s, I, I watched the series again. I watched it for the first time. I had, re- I, I had chosen not to watch it before. Because as I as I started to watch, all of the feelings were coming back, and oh my God, I know what's going to happen next. I know how I'm going to feel, and this is horrible, and it was horrible then, and I don't want to go back through it again. It was horrible. I, I like that's amazing it. that you felt because for for us it it ends in triumph. But as you write in the book, you hit the like it was desperate in there, wasn't it? It was lonely, yeah. desperate. Yeah, I mean, like you know, the stakes were like. You know that I know you're a sports fan. I'm a sports fan. I, I grew up with the story of. I was too young to to have any firsthand memory of it. But the story of Bobby Thompson and Ralph Branca, and Bobby Thompson hit a home run for the Giants that won the pennant. Giants uh, win the pennant. Up. The Giants win the pennant. I was fifty four. Uh, no, I think it was 1950, 51. 51, yeah. And 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 Ralph Branca was the pitcher. And, and Ralph Branca was a decent pitcher, but from then on, he was the guy who gave up Bobby Thompson's home run. Anybody who's a baseball fan from the ni- through the 1980s, Bill Buckner. Bill Buckner was a good player. Yeah. He let a ground ball go through his legs. For the Red Sox. And, uh, for the Red Sox, and the Red Sox on the verge of winning their first World Series in 70 years or something, lost. And so I knew the stakes of uh, the, you know, the, the, this, this series was going to create an all-time hero, and very likely it was going to create an all-time goat as, as mm. before goat became greatest of all time. Right. I mean, that's what was going to happen. We knew the stakes, you know, of, of all of this. So we're riding this roller coaster, and, but unlike, you know, a roller coaster where you can almost predict where the next up and down and twist and turn is going to be, this was a series that had no predictable moments. It was going all, wherever it was going to go, and you had to find a way of dealing with it, coping with it, finding an answer for what had happened before, for what is going to happen next. Uh, by the way, you are 100% right. 1951, the Dodgers, uh, the shot heard around the world. Can I ask you about, the stakes were so high, 
And then a young uh, Bobby Clark, who goes on also to be a Hall of Famer, of course, um, has that, I, I think it's game seven, slashes the greatest, maybe the most effective Russian player, Karlamov, Valerie Karlamov. The slash breaks his ankle. Um, in the end, was that, I mean, I, I, don't, I know you've, you've been asked about it, but was that just a sign of desperation? And, and did Canada need to win? A lot of people say you had to win dirty. Well, you know, I don't really quite know the answer to that. I mean, I, I, that, that all, all that I know is that I didn't, I didn't even know what happened until I think the series was over. I saw that Harlemov wasn't on the ice. Uh, uh, I think the, what you're talking about happened, it might have happened in the sixth game. I'm not sure. But, but I, I knew he wasn't on probably for the next game, and then I think he tried to play the eighth game, but really he was too injured you know, to play. And, and, uh, and I mean, I, I, I can't answer the question. I mean, that, that we all have our, our moments. We all have the things that we are, you know, going, you know, uh, we, we have lines, uh, for ourselves that we cross or we don't cross. The thing that, that, that is, is, is the hardest to, you know, in order to find an answer for it is that I would suspect in your life and I know in my life, that I would have had lines at a certain point, and all of a sudden I'm put in a situation, yeah. and where that line is it starts to uh, shift on me, and and I think that for all of us, the, the 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 experience that almost none of us have had, but that we wonder about, is in terms of war. I mean, you know, that right. here are that you know that the vast vast majority of of soldiers. Have, have have never been in the situation and you of don't, finding you somebody shooting at them before. Uh, but Ken Dryden, you're right by with Game Six, a Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, your your new book, this series, what I remember, what it felt like, what it feels like, is so great. Thanks for joining us. Please read this book, folks.